0: Yo, 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 Canolios, podcast addicts, strangers, and friends. Thanks for listening. This is Tony Gapastone. It's just me doing the intro solo for episode 13, but don't don't fret. Wendy will be back. I have a special guest for this episode all about how to read the Bible and what it means to read the Bible and how to disagree with the Bible. Like, oh, what? Can you? Does the Bible disagree with itself? Eyebrows raised, cue furrowed brow. Yes, the Bible is a very strange book, and it's a wonderful book, and it's a book of truth and commandments and story and history and poetry and metaphor, and it is life-changing. And my guest today, Daniel Kirk, talks about what and how and why the Bible is meant to be read through the lens of the story of Jesus. It is so fascinating. I'll tell you and introduce you um, to him more in the podcast later. Before we get to him, let me say thank you to all of our listeners. We are uh, over, our first episode has 340 listens so far. Um, a couple of our other episodes have like four and 500 listeners. So that means people are skipping around, which is fine. Uh, so if you're just joining us here in episode 13, know that there's 12 other episodes before. And the whole idea is that uh, the, they're not... It's not episodic necessarily, but there is some progression in the first few episodes to kind of tell you about how we got here. So the Holy Cannoli podcast is under my nonprofit called Brave Maker. And I wanna say thank you to the 11 people who've become Brave Maker partners, that's financial partners, enabled me to do this work because I'm pouring my life into creativity, into my mission to tell stories that change the world because brave stories change the world. And through this podcast, through my film projects, BraveMaker is doing a retreat in October, October 19 to 21. If you are an artist or you know any creative person, come to the Bay Area. We're going to Point Bonita. It's $325. You can register. Join me and my cool team of people, Danny Bridgens. Uh, Rebecca Nira is going to be there. She's uh, a fantastic fashion designer um, from Canada. Uh, Spent time in Spain. Her and her husband just moved to the Bay Area. I'm so excited for all the people. And Andrea Hamilton from SoCal is going to come and share her music. There's some really fun, fun stuff happening on this retreat. And it's all about how to creatively accelerate your project while staying spiritually fresh and soulfully rested that's kind of the whole idea it's a creative soul retreat october 19 to the 21st so share that with your creative friends come join me register on bravemaker.com retreat all right and yeah so please 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 i'm looking for generous people who can help me do this work i gosh it's so cool With what you, the 11 people who've given, I've had like nine people give one time gifts to help me get on my feet, to help me uh, pay all the fees with uh, filing all our federal paperwork and the consultation um, agency I had to hire. I got a free office space to use to actually do my work out of. I have not taken a salary yet from the, um, the nonprofit, but my goal is to do that come next month. So I need your help to do that. If you would go to bravemaker.com, you can pledge 25 bucks, a hundred bucks a month. You can pledge a one-time donation of a hundred bucks. That's great too. But I'm looking for people who can give and commit to a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand one time or monthly so that I can expand Bravemaker so I can get gear and actually hire some staff to do some of these video projects and produce these podcasts and launch our film festival in June 2019. So cool. So many great things. So please consider that Bravemaker.com I'm so grateful to all of you who listen and support and retweet and get all this information and these stories out into the world because it truly is, I mean, it truly is having an impact. And I want to invite you, if you want to come hear more about what I'm doing through Brave Maker and you're in the Bay Area on Friday, September 21st and Saturday, September 29th, uh, 2018, I'm doing a vision story and wait for it, cannoli night. That's right. Holy cannoli being served, at the Mosaic Cafe at Sequoia Church's campus in Redwood City, Friday, 9-21 and Saturday, 9-29. If you want more information, just message me, um, make a comment on the Facebook page. I'll put all the information there for RSVP. Okay, so with no further ado, oh, by the way, well, yeah, I got to warn you. If you have little ears, children in the room or in the car, this might not be a good podcast, especially toward the end because we do talk about grown-up stuff like intimacy. Uh, so yes, um, <laughs> grown-up intimacy type stuff that the Bible even talks about. So we're going to go there. And if you, if you yourself feel easily offended about um, uncomfortable things like the Bible uh, and sexuality, this podcast might be a little difficult for you. Just wanted to give you a heads up on that. So with no further ado, tune in, buckle up, sit back, and get ready for professor, theologian, author, Dr. Daniel Kirk.
1: You are listening to the Holy Cannoli Podcast. It's all about making sense of life, who we are, and why we're here. Life is sacred and life is strange. And here's our dad, Tony totally Okay. I, I, I feel like that. The visual here is great. Like, I'm in San Francisco. I've got... I'm cold. I've got my, my hat. I've got my really big <laughs> headphones. Like, basically, I feel like I'm announcing a, a mid-season Green Bay Packers game. Are you from I, Wisconsin? I, no. Oh. But, like, where where they dressed like That's right. They're look they're, like this. Some, some field where they don't have central heat, even for the announcers. And
0: here I am in my short sleeve shirt, and I'm, like, hot now, because I was cold when I came into San Francisco. Right. Okay, so sure. Okay, so... You do have to talk like this. You can hear yourself, right? I can. Okay, just for the podcast wise, I've gotten feedback that some of my podcasts are like so like low. They have to turn it up in their car. I'm like, I'm trying, you guys. So you have to be like this. So right. I'm gonna. I'll back up at times. You can. Yes, yeah, so you can kind of hear back here too, echoey, too airy. Yes. Here is like the the ideal. Yeah. Good. Okay.
1: That's all radio, man, in
0: <laughs> my earphones. <laughs> okay, so. Daniel Kirk, welcome to Holy Cannoli.
1: Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I I was given Holy Cannoli as you walked in the door. That's right, but
0: don't tell people because not everybody gets the the cannoli, actually. Only like one in five guests so far. Okay,
1: cut that out. (laughs) Thank you. I delight in cannoli. It's always been one of my favorite Italian foods, right up until we learned how to make pasta from scratch.
0: Wait, what do you mean right up until?
1: I mean there's something about a big bowl of fettuccine that just has like cream mm. and butter, a little salt, mm. little pepper, I don't screw around, just you know, it straight from the the cutter into the water Cook for three
0: minutes. So that trumps the cannoli. The pasta trumps the cannoli. It it's better really than... Oh, I'm,
1: I'm really a savory guy. That's
0: impressive. Yeah. But, well, it's interesting, though, because cannoli isn't that sweet, right? So everyone who knows a cannoli, who hears that I like cannoli as my favorite dessert, it's like, that's an interesting choice because it's not the super sweetest thing in the world. It's cheese. <laughs> it's right? what we call it, the well, cheese, right? But it is magical. It yeah. is magical. Totally. Okay, so... Thanks for saying yes. This is crazy because I've been following you for the past few years. You you were one of my professors yes, in seminary, I was. and uh, I'm gonna have to. This is the funniest. Is this sto- payback. <laughs> this is payback. Okay. This is the funniest story ever for me because this was in 2010. I graduated seminary, and I think was that your first year.
1: Uh, I started in 2008, so I'd been there for a couple of years
0: at the Northern California one. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. so maybe you were my professor in. 2008 or 2009 and I actually graduated in 2010 okay but I was coming to the end that's all I know Uh I was coming to the end of my seminary career basically crawling basically (laughs) I was just hoping I could graduate because I had been there for so long I think the total of years in seminary because I took a break was nine
1: yeah I, I could never have done that. I, I like I was teaching students that did things that I knew I could never do. Like I could never work a job, then go home and read a serious book mm-hmm. for like 2 hours. I would just fall asleep. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do a seminary degree that took me like 6 years cuz I would like I just want to finish. Things.
0: That's how I felt. And you unfortunately got me at the end of my seminary career. Wow. And, <laughs> and I have to tell you the funniest story because for one, I don't how old are you? Do you mind saying?
1: Yeah, not at all. I'm, I'm. uh 43 now. Yeah, so
0: so we're the same age. All right. Okay, so I always thought you were younger than me. But wait, when were you born? What um, you, what month?
1: <laughs> May.
0: Okay, so so you're actually a month older than me. Oh my gosh! I was born in June, 1975, and when you came, when I got your class, I knew I always had you. <laughs> when I got your class, I thought. This punk is younger than me, he's smarter than me. He's standing at the the beginning, you know, the front of the class behind the lectern doing his thing and I just felt intimidated like I can't keep up. I had two kids, a 3-year-old and a 1-year-old. And I think you were one of my I want to say it was like 229 2009 maybe. So maybe you'd been there like a year. I knew you were kind of relatively new. And I was like, oh, man, this guy's the new guy. He's going to let me coast in. You did not. <laughs> you did not. Okay, so I actually wrote a blog about this and about you. I think I was, I was kind. But you were the only professor to give me a C in, in my oh, seminar. Oh, no.
1: You?
0: <laughs> well, let me say it was well-deserved okay. because I was trying to coast. I, barely, I think I barely made it through class sometimes. Three-hour classes on the weeknights, like 6 to 9 or 6 to 9.30? Another
1: thing I could never do sit on the other end of that. Uh,
0: but what I appreciated about you is we had a conversation. Do you remember at the end of class, the end of our class like year about projects and stuff? Oh, I do, yeah. What do you remember about it?
1: Uh, what I remember was that you said that – I remember you telling me that this was a very word-heavy class. Which is true.
0: Um, in word, did I mean Bible word or just word word? I mean word yeah. word.
1: Like there's Bible, there's reading, there's writing, and there's a lot of words. And, you, and you're and you like, you know, I'm not really a word guy. You know, I'm a visual artist, whatever. And this was actually a very significant moment for me because I knew from our interactions in <laughs> class that you were getting things better than you were, like... Able to you know, communicate able to, them? Yes. Yeah, communicate them or represent uh-huh. them on the yes. earth. Like, at least, you know, I don't know if you were studying or not, but at least, like, <laughs> conceptually, like, you were you were definitely tracking with things. Yeah. And that helped me realize that I didn't... I wasn't really, like finding ways for students to show me what they knew based on, you know, how they could do their thing. Mm-hmm. And so I actually changed my final project from that class. You never benefited from this.
0: I remember you told me this afterwards. I was yeah. like, what? No
1: fair. So yeah, I act for that class and you know, I, I actually opened up my final project for students to be able to do whatever they wanted. I said, "Just take the class material in one hand and take your whatever you care about in the other and bring them into conversation. So like subsequent years, <laughs> I got movies, I got songs That's I got awesome, videos, dude. I got all this great stuff, but yeah, you were you were screwed. <laughs>
0: I just love that. First of all, thanks for being open to have that conversation. You were gracious, but you're also like, dude, this is seminary. Buck up, man. Like, there's this is a wordy place. If you want to be here, you got to deal with it. But then I remember you came back and told me, hey, I am changing, and I was like, dang, that's amazing. But I wish I could have done that.
1: You want to defer to graduation? Can I?
0: Can I do it again? No, no, thanks. So, uh, so, dude, I just love that you're a part of my story. You're a part of my journey, even though like we haven't like connected one on one. Since then, I've been following your work and what you're doing, and since I started this podcast, I wanted to talk about the ways that you're engaging with people, you're engaging with the church and theology. You are a brilliant person, uh, the way you handle scripture, your outlook on uh, the writings. I love that, you know, hopefully we'll get there, I love that you you wrote a book basically about disagreeing with Paul. Oh, yeah. Like, how freaking awesome is that? So, All right, so let's just start, first of all... Um, how like how? Tell me your faith experience. How did you find yourself being a person of Jesus or a person of faith?
1: Uh, parental indoctrination. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I grew up in a in a very church going kind of family. My mom was often music minister at churches that I grew up in. My dad and mom both worked with youth group. So that's like some of my earliest fun childhood memories was tagging along to youth group things. Were the
0: youth pastors or volunteers? Official like.
1: Yeah, my People? um my mom in her music minister capacity would do a youth choir and then my dad would volunteer with a youth group. So they were very involved just um yeah, kind of that, that both and kinda angle.
0: And where was this? Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up well, my dad was in the ooh, you just moved it. the mic that and sounds I sounds better, like, right? My yeah, my okay. voice just came alive. Good, good, headphones. good. Um yeah, m- my um my dad was in the Navy when I was growing up, so we moved generally every three to five years, depending on what was going on. So we had some longer stretches. Uh, so I remember being a kid in church in Rhode Island, uh, early in elementary school, we were in Northern Virginia. Um, and then when I was in middle school, we my family was stationed in Spain, so we went to a, a base chapel. Um and then back to Northern Virginia for high school. So in those contexts, generally speaking, we were in what there used to be something called a moderate Southern Baptist. Uh, it was in the the early eighties and toward you know in hanging on for dear life at the in the early nineties uh, before the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention. And like if you guys don't know any of those stories. <sighs> Like crazy town stuff, like literally busing people into the convention so that you could stack votes, mm. um, taking over the seminaries, and people are literally showing up one day and the locks have been changed on their doors. Like that kind the church of church people would do that crazy town stuff. So, yeah, that, those weren't our Southern Baptist people. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we were uh, my dad's grandparents uh, had been missionaries in Brazil, he had a brother who was a missionary in Brazil, and you know, siblings who were. Baptist ministers and things. So that's kind of what what the roots were. And then when I got to college is when I started, you know, getting a little bit more serious about stuff. I think just that freedom of having to choose for yourself and deciding to go do Jesus-y things Mm -hmm. uh, had an impact. My first semester in college, I uh, took a a general ed class or religion class called Faith and Imagination, where we read some theology. We read some C.S. Lewis and some J.R.R. Tolkien and then i realized ooh mm-hmm. this is what i really love to do mm-hmm. is talk about this stuff and and argue about this stuff but always coming back to the Bible uh, as my way of doing theology.
0: I want to take a class called Faith and Imagination. I like that those two words. Sometimes people don't expect them to go together. Mm. And I've been trying to grab that phrase when I preach or teach about the Bible that the Bible requires us to use imagination. And I think that, some, for some people, that is a little like eye-opening, eyebrow-raising, like, I don't know. What are you talking about? These are commandments. These are literal things we need to do. Why, how do we engage? So talk about that for your journey, how that actually influenced you.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I think the, the, the place where I find that, um, getting traction in my journey really comes several years later, uh, as I started working with my um, doctoral director, Richard Hayes. Uh, he had a uh, an article that uh, article title that also became a book title uh, that was called "Conversion of the Imagination," mm. and he was that. arguing that in First Corinthians, the way Paul was using Scripture was trying to transform the ways that the Corinthians understood themselves, their identity, this kind of uh, participating in the apocalyptic story of God and God's saving action in Christ and all that. And that's for me has been the place where. Uh, I think I have most started to to dig into that imagination component and realizing that so much of of what of who we are as Christian people or as people really does depend on how we imagine ourselves to be and like when we 're reading scripture mm. we you are always coming as a subject who's reading these things, and you know over time i 've discovered that people really do read, what they find what they expect to find, and they read Mm. what they expect to be there. Mm. So the idea that uh, there is an understanding that we need to be converted to so that we can read the Bible rightly, so that we can relate to each other rightly, Mm. like, you know, that whole idea of following commandments and all that, like, Eh. I, I I don't think that those are deeply they're, – they're not deeply transformative ways of trying to follow Jesus. And the way you know this is because the people who are most committed to commandments and laws and rules and following Jesus are the ones who are most likely to um, have a, a scandal about their money or their sex or their power being abused. And it's all over with the hashtag church2 stuff right now. Uh, and I just think it's showing us that – those are... Wait,
0: do you say they are mo- they are most likely to have scandals? I, I, I think they are. Oh, uh, interesting. Or at
1: least they're not any less likely than anybody yeah. else.
0: So you're saying just because someone holds to the commandments or believes that Scripture is, quote-unquote, the Word of God, the authority of God, that doesn't preclude them or exclude them from being the ones who are leading in our scandals and in yeah. the Church 2 Me Too movement stuff?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's actually a really bad way mm. to try to form people uh, and... You know I, I see this also you know I'm you know I, I I actually I hate partisan politics like every now and then you know I'll give somebody five dollars and then <laughs> I can't stay subscribed to their email for longer than the you know a day because I'll get three of them and I'm like, well, the Republicans are doing this and the Republicans are doing this and help the and I'm like I don't care about your team like mm. uh, you know your Jersey doesn't do anything for me but um uh, I think that you know, uh, I again you know I think politics. And Christianity mirror each other, and mm. like what people hold like in their imagination about the the way the world should work, and mm. rules and laws, and respecting tradition and things. And I, I've just found that, that you know, one of the reasons that I've become less comfortable with traditional conservative articulations of Christianity and politics is because I found that uh, like humans get lost in that. And, and I've, I look at the way of life that that creates in the way that people treat each other. Mm-hmm. And more and more, I think that just doesn't look like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't see that forming the kinds of communities that are like, taking care of each other in the sort of selfless ways, uh, you know, like a true love mm-hmm. um, that looks anything like first Corinthians 13, or, um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the, uh, I think, commandments and rules and things. I actually think that's uh, that's the tail, right? You and you don't you don't want that wagging the dog, mm-hmm. right? There is a I think we need to cultivate an imagination and a sensibility about what love looks like, about what goodness looks like. And I think I return to the Jesus story again and again for this. What is allowing that to shape my understanding of what love looks like and what it means to be fully human? And then I want to listen for your guidelines, rules, principles, whatever, that articulate what we've seen. But yeah, I think starting with the, the rules is getting the whole story backwards.
0: So you kind of alluded to this idea of kind of trying to relearn, like we have to relearn how to read the Bible or relearn how to study the Bible. And as I've been kind of in this new space of my life and career, no longer as a vocational pastor and a church staff. I would say it's been going on for the past three to five years where I've sort of been discontent or uncomfortable with how we, I would say, use strong, how we use the Bible to say what we want it to say. So I'm going to ask you how, because some of my listeners are, they're all over the place. Uh, they're, they are followers of Jesus, some. Some are strong, um, you know, I hate labels, but they, they hold to the Bible in different ways. Some are very loosely holding the Bible and open to different interpretations. And some listeners are going, hey, I'm spiritual, but the Bible is this old book, and it doesn't really have influence over my life. So um, just in general, um, and then if you want to be specific toward Uh, particular groups of Christians, how can we read the Bible better? What are some things we can do to read the Bible better and not just throw out the catchphrases that have been taught to us in Sunday school or in worship gatherings on Sundays that limit us from being open to the spirit and what the spirit might be doing?
1: Yeah, that's a very big question, uh, how to read the Bible. Uh, But so these are a few things that, um, that I think about. And Uh, generally uh, I want to say that there is, like that my way of reading the Bible is a very Jesus centered way of reading the Bible, which I think has a very strong precedent both in the New Testament itself and in the history of the church, even though it hasn't always been practiced in the ways that that I'll talk about. Um, So uh, let me just give you a couple of examples of of how this is precedent. What I'm talking about generally is the way that the New Testament writers talk about the relationship between Jesus and what we would call the Old Testament, mm-hmm. but for you know, Jesus and his followers, that would have just been Scripture. Mm-hmm. Right? The New Testament wasn't Scripture mm-hmm. yet. Um, and so like, there's this time where uh, the Pharisees and Jesus are having an argument in John, and Jesus says to them, You read the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it's these that testify about me. Right, so the idea being that scripture doesn't on its own function as a, a life-giving thing; it has to be read rightly. It has mm-hmm. to be read as testimony mm-hmm. to and, and pointing toward Jesus. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, I'm coming back to this: How does the Jesus story shape our, our imagination? Uh, one thing that that Jesus tells us that is also, in, of course, in the Old Testament scripture is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I think that taking that as a guide, uh, I. I think it can guide us through reading Scripture in several different ways. One, to love my neighbor who is the person who wrote a scriptural text is to be willing to sit and listen to what they had to say, even if it seems like it disagrees with me, and to let it stand. Scripture, uh, spoiler alert, Scripture is not... Um, does not speak with one voice and one opinion about almost any issue that you want to know. Why are there Calvinists and Arminians? It's not because half the church is good at reading the Bible and half the church is bad. It's because there's really good biblical precedent for both kinds of understandings of God's relationship with humanity. There's not one biblical position about these sorts of things.
0: So could I clarify something real quick or ask, have you? So some of my listeners might not know what a Calvinist or an Arminian is. Oh,
1: you are so lucky. <laughs> You're so
0: lucky. Okay, so a Calvinist would
1: be somebody who thinks that God predestined, especially people, to salvation or not salvation. And an Arminian would be somebody who said no, that is something that happens of our own free will as we respond to you know, the, the message we hear or God's work in the world. Okay. Um, so, uh, so first of all, you know, I would say let, let the biblical writers say what they have to say. Uh, And and part of why that's important is because then you can can hear not only where they might be challenging you, but where they might be challenging each other, Mm. Um, right? How did God create the world? Did God speak the world? And let's just say people. How did God create people? Did God um, speak a word and humanity appeared on the earth? Or did God take a piece of dirt in literal hands and form it and literally breathe God's own exhale into the nostrils of the human to create life? Well, it depends on if you're reading Genesis 1 or 2, Mm. right? There are two different writers who have two different understandings of how God is at work in the world, and just let them sit there. So that is that is a first thing I want to say. and
0: Whoa, are you saying Genesis 1 and 2 was written by two different people? I am saying that. <laughs> okay, so some people just stopped the podcast right there. That's... All right,
1: I can, I'm going to lose you. I'm going to just gonna
0: start lopping
1: folks off here. Um, so uh, part of what that does for me is it, it says, okay, look. There's a, there's a diversity that's present in the theology of the Bible. Okay, here's something else. Um, read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels. That means they see things similarly, the same eye, right? Now, we, because they're so similar, uh, there's been a lot of study about why are they similar in the ways they're similar? Why are they dissimilar in the ways that they're dissimilar? What we know for sure is that both Matthew and Luke had access to Mark and are you ready? You're sitting down. <laughs> they changed it on purpose because they had different stories to tell. So the point of having these three gospels isn't to give us independent eyewitness testimony to the things Jesus did so that by three witnesses we know that everything is true. Mm. It's it's not to give us like this objective historical account. They preached the Jesus story differently for their own congregations. And sometimes they changed and did things differently specifically because they disagreed with each other. So here, here's, an, here's one of my favorite examples. There's this story in, in Mark where Jesus is being you know, chastised because his disciples don't fast like everybody else's disciples. He's like, Well, you can't fast while the bridegroom's with you, but the bridegroom will be taken away. You can fast then. And, this is his, and besides that, look, you can't take a new patch. And put it on an old garment, because if you do, then the patch shrinks, the garment tears, and both are useless. And you can't take new wine and put it in old wineskins, otherwise it's going to burst. So right, the point of both of those parables is you can't take this new thing, i.e., Jesus is here, and just put it into the old container, i.e., the, the laws and the traditions of the Jewish people up to that point, because it's not going to hold, Right. So very, you know, relatively clear sort of saying of Jesus in Mark. So Luke has that entire story, and then the last thing that he has Jesus say is, besides, no one when they've had old wine wants the new because the old is better. Completely opposite point Mm -hmm. of what the story meant in in Mark's context Mm -hmm. where he was copying it. But Luke is committed to showing this smooth continuity between the law, the Old Testament, the temple, the temple service, and the arrival of Jesus. And so he puts in this thing that completely elevates the value of what came before um, as the context for, for the ministry of Jesus. So they, the diversity that we have in the Bible is not only just there— in some cases, it's there on purpose, specifically because somebody wanted to say something different. Mm-hmm. And so so that's, okay, step, so that, right. So I'm, I'm loving my neighbor by listening to them. And now I'm realizing that two, three, four of my neighbors have different things to say. Mm-hmm. And they actually think different things uh, about Jesus. Uh, and so this is going to now start to change not only my understanding of what the Bible is, it's changing my understanding of what it means to be the faithful people of God. Mm-hmm. Because apparently it doesn't mean that we all have to agree on all of our theology mm-hmm. because then we would have to figure out which parts of the Bible to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, okay, but are, what like holds this thing all together? And for me, it really is a, a decision to read it all in light of the Jesus story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this is, um, it has some precedent in the Old Testament. It has precedent in in the Protestant tradition. For um, a guy named Martin Luther, you know, the father of the Reformation, uh, when he's starting to talk about interpreting the Bible, he says, you know, he focuses on those passages that promote Christ. Fast Christ drive it. And it's why he hated James and didn't want James in the Bible. Um, so you know, he has this idea about what the work of Jesus is like. And he says, some passages show that better than others. Mm-hmm. And I would go a step further and say, let's, let's spend so much time with the Jesus story and the Gospels especially. And then how Paul works it out in his letters and the rest of the New Testament. That we we have a really good sense of what it looks like to be walking in the way of Jesus. And then, this is part of the deal, the New Testament writers, when they quote the Old Testament, they just don't just quote the Old Testament. They reinterpret it mm-hmm. in light of their conviction that Jesus is the Messiah, saving humanity, showing us who God wants us to be, showing us who God is for the world. They reread the Bible in light of the Jesus story. Mm-hmm. So I actually advocate a doing a second reading, mm-hmm. so to speak. After you've Read, you know, Let the Old Testament r- writers say what the Old Testament writer is going to say and then say, well, you know, Jesus taught us to love our enemies. So when we come across a psalm that says, I hope somebody <laughs> picks up your babies and bashes their heads against the rocks, mm-hmm. we have to say, actually, I don't hope that. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that you know, your babies will come and have the blessing of Mm -hmm. Jesus laid on them. That maybe this psalmist is more like a disciple, Mm -hmm. the disciples who, when the people wanted to come and bring their children, the disciples said, no. And Jesus said, no, you got to let them come because this is who the kingdom of God belongs to. Mm -hmm. So I would give, if, if I were forced to like, if that passage came up in a lectionary or we were preaching through the Psalms or, or anything, um, I might read it just to say it's here, and this Mm -hmm. is the context in which it makes sense. Babylonian exile, they've been drawn out from their land. Their own kids have been killed. Um, But we're living on the other side of the the death and resurrection of Jesus now, and we have to— reread this because if we don't, our understanding of God is going to be deformed yeah. because we're going to think that our God is a God that gets excited about babies' heads yeah. being bashed against rocks. And that's going to make us think that God gets excited about us as God's people bashing babies' heads against rocks. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this vocation to love your neighbor as yourself, um, to love your enemies, as Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount, to do to others, as, like, it all crumbles mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that verse we've decided is more important than understanding who God is as revealed in Christ. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that the health of our readings of the Bible will all ultimately boil down to how healthy is our understanding of the Jesus story mm-hmm. and how faithful are we at reading this whole narrative and multiple narratives in light of of that story uh, as mm-hmm. what God is up to in the world.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm loving this because it sounds like, Daniel, you're encouraging us to read the Bible with the heart, mind, life of Jesus, to look at the words of Scripture through Jesus. And almost in a way, I kind of hear a couple things. One, I hear you saying we need to engage Scripture uh, with in, in conversation, just like we need to listen to each other, we need to listen to the Bible. And I think, two. Maybe to go a step further, are you saying it's even okay to disagree with the Bible? Which I think some people will hear that word and go, there's no way. I, the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's, you know, Some people use the word inerrant. And uh, I feel very, like I'm an average theologian, remember that? Who got a C in New Testament. <laughs> but I still feel like I'm able to engage Scripture in a way that says, some things in Scripture are just crazy and mm-hmm. whack. And <laughs> we can't lump this this book of writings as saying that everything in it is from God. I think what I would love to hear you talk about is in the same way, like I go to two different quotes, one by Rachel Held Evans, in which she says, the Bible is a conversation starter, is meant to be a conversation starter, not a converse- conversation ender. And another quote is by Pete Enns, I might be botching these, but I'm summarizing, is that, the Bible isn't meant to be uh, God's words to us, but about God's people's words about God as they try to understand God. And that God seems to be comfortable with his people trying to understand him and expressing that through the written word. So can you comment a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, You know, that bit about disagreeing with the scripture I I feel the I feel the weight of that concern. I mean, come on, you know, Bible nerd, PhD, Southern Baptist upbringing. Even even if it was moderate, you know, like
0: um, yeah, we didn't talk about that. You're doctor, Daniel Kirk, huh?
1: Uh, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's why I have to give Cs every now and Dr. then. Doctor Kirk, right? which I like.
0: I think you should go by Captain Kirk. I think for all of us sci-fi nerds, we would give that more respect, Captain Kirk. Okay. Anyway.
1: Okay. Um,
0: <laughs> back to the Bible. All
1: right. Back to toxic masculinity. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, so uh, so I, I so I feel the the weight of that of that concern about disagreeing with the Bible, and so part of what I always try to come back to is. When I'm disagreeing with Scripture, I always try to do so as part of the Bible 's own internal dialogue and mm-hmm. so So here's an example in um, In early baptismal formulas we find uh, that are repeated in the New Testament. Uh, we find things that you know when you're baptized into Christ, there's no longer Jew and Greek, slave, free, male and female. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go somewhere else. You know, Jew, barbarian, you know, Greek, Scythian, slave, free man, because you're all one in Christ. All this, right? So there it's, it's kind of a, a rewriting of the identity of the community on the basis of this shared identity in Christ. Now, part of what you might not see if you if you haven't kind of gotten into, um, you. Know, ancient, uh, philosophy and household codes and ethics and all this is that, um, but we, what we today might call patriarchy, right? The, a world in which men rule over, over women wind? was actually this elaborate set of, um, hierarchical antitheses. So, two things that are set against each other, one of which is considered better than the other. So, you know, Aristotle's like, well, the most basic unit is a household, and in a household, you have husbands and wives, um, parents and children, slaves and free people, and then he'll he'll grow that. He's like, because that's the microcosm of the world, and then of course, there's Greeks and there's barbarians, and then why is one of these better than the other? Well, there's things that are just better, like you know, foresight. And then, well, if somebody has this great gift of seeing the future and planning, who else is there? Well, then there's the people who implement. Oh, that's why you need masters and slaves. That's why you need senators and equatorial class, and you've got to have the peasants to do the things, and you know, you've got to have your generals and your soldiers. And it's all about who's inherently better than the other. So when you come to the New Testament and you find these things that say there's no longer Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, you have to understand that that is the thin end <laughs> of the wedge into this whole patriarchal system of hierarchical order where certain people are considered to be inherently better than the other and Paul is saying no with this new this dawning of the new humanity in Christ that 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 just isn't true anymore okay So then you know I come to Ephesians or Colossians or someplace that's saying um, okay now slaves obey your masters masters be like this to your slaves husbands you know love your wives wives submit to your husbands you know parents to children. Those, it takes these exact same pairs that Aristotle started with mm-hmm. that are you find them in other Greek philosophy and in Jewish you know, ethics uh, around the same time. And, he's, and they're now trying, now there's this other passage that's basically trying to regulate patriarchy in light of Jesus. Like, okay, well, this patriarchy is a given, so let's all be good Jesus lovers in that. And what I want to say is, no, the gospel says... Actually, those patriarchal sets of relationships, like that's the wrong way to structure the world. So I don't think that wives are supposed to submit mm-hmm. to their husbands. I think that that whole the, the, the structure that's implicit there and, and the convictions behind it about who's better than who actually aren't true in Jesus anymore. Mm. And even though Paul knew that, Either he thought Jesus was coming back so soon that he wasn't—he didn't want to like blow up the household and society, or he just hadn't worked it all out yet because mm. he's only one guy mm-hmm. and he's writing le- letters for maybe eight or nine years, and like he's on the the cutting edge of so many things um, in terms of integrating Gentiles into the churches, mm. but he just didn't work it all out. So when I say I disagree with the household codes and I think that not only the specific instructions but the assumption behind that whole chapter in Ephesians 5 and 6 is wrong I'm doing it because I think Paul Mm. tells us rightly uh, and the whole church confessed rightly in these baptismal formulas about who we are and it's our job now not just to say what they said, but to continue working out what they were what they said for our own time and place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's this great line from Karl Barth where he says, the job of dogmatic theology isn't to say what the apostles and prophets said. Mm. The the job of dogmatics is to say what we must say mm. on the basis of what the apostles and prophets mm. said. Okay, so this guy gets you into this Rachel Held Evans thing where she's like, scripture's a conversation and a conversation starter. I'm like, yeah, if if like what if what it means for the the New Testament to be authoritative isn't that we're just supposed to take all of its words and systematize them and repeat them and put them into the right boxes in our lives. What if the New Testament being authoritative means these are disciples of Jesus who are authoritatively showing us how to work out the Jesus story in different contexts. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. That means, well, there's a Jesus story that's been written and there's ways that I need to retell and reshape that story for my context, right? Matthew's like, yeah, I'm trying to deal with the whole being more Jewish thing, uh, and so I'm going to retell the Jesus story for that. Like that. And by the way, that's what you do every Sunday morning when somebody preaches, mm-hmm. right? They're not just telling you what the Bible said. They're yeah. re-inscribing that story into the new place. So yeah. I think part of it is becoming self-aware of what we're actually doing uh, in our practices together. Um, and also I would say that in the, in the Jewish tradition, that's much more deeply ingrained. Um, Jewish people never uh, like if you look at their authoritative texts like the 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 Talmud and the Mishnah and the Mishnah and the, the Talmud and and um, the the writings that that grew up around them. Yet what they in Christian writings, it's all about this is what's true, and we anathematize these other views. Like literally, like you know, you say these nice confessions in church. If you look up the actual proceedings of the council, what they say is, we believe, we believe, believe, and we. We condemn, we condemn, we condemn, we condemn. So it's always about we're right and everybody else is wrong. Mm-hmm. In the Jewish tradition, what they do is Rabbi so-and-so said this. Rabbi Shammai said this. And Rabbi Gamaliel said this. And oh, yeah, Rab- Rabbi you know, Yehuda said this thing. And then they move on. Mm. So the, the disagreement is, in, is the, the tradition. The, the conversation is the tradition. And then, the, and then they, they mm. comment around that. They literally, like the, the Talmud is commentary that they write in the margins around the Mishnah. So now you have this whole other debate that's preserved there. So that is a perfectly faithful way mm. of continuing what the Bible itself is and the the reason why it strikes us is so weird is because of the ways that that Christianity has developed its own very peculiar way of of thinking about you know how to handle disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think there are some much healthier models for dealing with the Bible than uh, than a lot of the ones that, that we have. It it just takes a lot of work to, mm-hmm. f- to figure out, like, what are the assumptions? Like, why do I want to control this way of talking about the Bible and engaging it so much?
0: I think that word control is uh, a good word because we like to feel as if we know what we're talking about. We like to feel as if we know all the outcomes and it's puts us at a very uneasy, uncomfortable place when we have a conversation that we might be wrong about the Bible. And I think that's where I I am these days. You know, it's very popular to say your faith is being deconstructed, but I think in a way it is for me and and I'm with God kind of putting it back together. I don't know what even it looks like really, but I'm Mm -hmm. engaging in this discussion where I feel as if I'm learning a bunch of new things uh, and I'm unlearning a bunch of things and it's no longer it doesn't. It doesn't work for me to say the Bible says this, that, or this or that. Uh, I think there's even some really good. Um theology to say we should get rid of that phrase, the Bible says, because to say the Bible says one thing, unless it's about loving your neighbor and loving God, uh, doesn't really work. To say the Bible says sure. anything about one particular subject, uh, what I hear you saying, isn't true, because the Bible's in conversation even with itself. Yeah, uh, I think one of my favorite things of late has been that Erwin McManus, I think he said this years ago, at a, you know, ironically, at the Willow Creek Leadership Summit, and I say ironically because of what's going on with that church in its leadership structure, Uh, going back to scandals, as you said earlier before. But I guess at one point at the Willow Leadership Conference, which for my listeners who don't know what that is, it's an annual thing. I think it's been going on for 20, 30 years maybe. Uh, It's a leadership um, two-day summit, if you will, for leaders of all kinds, leaders in the marketplace. There are people like Simon Sinek who go there, people like John Maxwell, faith leaders, government leaders, all that kind of stuff. And I guess uh, Erwin McManus had said something, like, the Bible contradicts itself. And he quoted Solomon, who said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And then he had quoted Isaiah, who said, uh, God is doing a new thing. Do you not see it? And he said, look, even those two, right, are disagreeing with themselves. And I guess he was scrubbed <laughs> <laughs> from, scrubbed from the, the videos that came out afterwards. His whole, oh, wow. yeah, His whole talk was taken off. Because of him saying that. And then I think in the past year, he's been writing a bunch of books. uh, Andy Stanley has picked up that same type of language. And now it's like, you know, acceptable in public. Mm -hmm. And Andy Stanley, for those of you who don't know, is another kind of mega church type of leader. But that just is really fascinating for me that I think we as a people are growing. And that's kind of where I have been. Um trying to explain my journey to people, to my friends, to my family, even to listeners. Uh, this is only, we're only like, you know, 14 episodes into Holy Cannoli here, but I've been getting a lot of great feedback and a lot of concerned feedback going, Tony, what are you talking about? Especially having my friend, uh, Matt and Terry, who uh, Terry is a mother of a gay son and Matt is an out gay man who's also a pastor, uh, having them tell their stories for many Christians has been concerning. Because they will come back and say, well, the Bible says Mm. that homosexuality is wrong. Mm. And for me, I've been coming back to say, well, where does it? How does it? And how do we engage in this text? And would the Bible writer of such and such passage today, Paul, Romans 1, what would he say today in our context about how the gospel is manifested? How does Jesus relate to the gay community today? And I know you've been doing some writing and some talking about that. And you actually sent an article That I'll um, launch off with you in this. That said, and I forget who wrote it. You're gonna have to um, quote me.
1: Luke Timothy Johnson.
0: Yes, him. Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a a New Testament theologian. He said that if the sin, if, if if it's a sin to disregard scripture. I'm paraphrasing. If it's it's a sin to disregard scripture, then it's also a sin to blindly adhere to scripture. He said the sin of the Pharisees was something like just that, right? That they were um, not able to see what God was doing, what Jesus was doing. And the Pharisees, we often make the villains of the story, but they were good religious people who were trying to adhere to what they knew about God, what they've been written and told about God, but I think that really impacted me when you shared that article is that if it's a sin to go against scripture, quote unquote, then it's also a sin to blindly adhere to scripture and not to engage it and question it and dialogue with it. Can you comment on that? And especially in regards to sexuality and what we're seeing in our new, in our culture today.
1: Yeah. Um, for sure. Oh, there's so many things that you just said that I I really want to, I want to pick up on. Uh, one of them being that, um, the internet exists now. And, and <laughs> even though even though we do tend to, you know, we, we do create silos in the internet and Facebook has helped us with that. And we're learning all about that. Algorithms are not neutral, all that. Um, I think so many more people are learning that the fact of the matter is the Bible isn't what We grew up hearing it is. Mm. Like, people are exposed to critical scholarship. You know, they can hear people saying things like these two verses contradict each other. That I think that Christianity as a whole needs to learn how to deal with this. And I guess what I'm saying is evangelical Christianity, which tried to keep all of this at bay by having its own fleet of scholars whose job it was to refute everything that main you know the mainstream academy was saying like that's that is increasingly a losing strategy and you see it through generation wave after wave of kids leaving the church usually you know it's like 20 something folks or early 30s and it was the emergent people in my generation it's the ex-evangelical folks and and who are currently going on so like Mm. if this stuff is disturbing to you I would encourage you just to to be patient with it and listen and you know figure out like what can you work with here because even if you think that this is the worst thing ever that sorts of th- things that we're saying um, these are the very things that are making people leave the church uh, or that people are discovering and they're maybe leaving your church or whatever and I think that it's actually a lot healthier for us if we can. You know, the stuff that's right on the table in front of us, if we can open our eyes to it and talk about it mm-hmm. together. Um, now, with the sexuality stuff and and Luke Johnson, uh, you know, I, I think that, that if there's a, a way to prepare for, for what he said, that this is one thing that I always try to instill in my students when we're reading, uh, especially when we're reading the Gospels, but always because we know that Jesus is the good guy, it's so easy to identify with him when you're reading the story. Um, here is another th- um, way to – if you want to read the Bible in a healthy, life-giving way, don't stop reading the story about Jesus until you understand how you or your faith community are the people that Jesus is arguing against. Mm-hmm. Because they like the Pharisees were the conservative law-keeping Bible people of the first century. That's what they what they wanted was for everybody to be keeping the whole Bible, like keeping all the laws in as much of their lives as possible. Um, that sounds like a very evangelical, like, you know, Protestant sort of, sort of posture. So when Luke Johnson says, like, you know, that's the Pharisee's mistake, I think he's on to something that has a lot of resonance with where we are. Um, you know, I, I think that the the sexuality stuff is tricky uh, in part because we share so few assumptions with early people. And, and this isn't just true about same-sex relationships, right? We date. Mm. We choose Who we're going to marry. Um, You know, we think about, you know, like, I don't know, women go to college and, you know, work outside the home, uh, away from a family unit structure. Um, We live in families that usually consist of only parents and their children and their minor children. All of these are very weird things um, that don't map onto the world of the bible at all so it's a it we're always doing a lot of translating when we're talking about sexuality family um marriage anything um i do think you know the the sexuality stuff is interesting in that it's um there is sort of consistency, and this is where I think a lot of folks have had trouble with the same-sex stuff. Is right? There's it, only a few verses, you know, a couple of places, Leviticus. Um, you know, maybe you drop down one place in uh, Ezekiel, and then you've got um, you've got Romans and First Corinthians and First Timothy. You know, there's there's not a lot, but it seems to be fairly consistent. Um, so, a, a couple things I'd say about that. One is. Um, Back to this whole uh, patriarchy thing I was talking about a while ago. Um, this this shouldn't come as a shock, but you know when people think that genders are related to each other in specific ways in specific hierarchies, that impacts how they think about what sex is okay to have and what sex is not okay to have. Uh, and so, um, ancient understandings of sexuality were all written into these assumptions about uh, a patriarchal system, right? Why is it that uh, a woman who gets raped has to marry her rapist, mm-hmm. right? Because a woman is property for her father to sell or give away or do whatever. And you, now she's damaged goods. Um, that's
0: the Bible says that. Right?
1: Uh, I mean, yeah, oh yeah. That's in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, like once you've uh, in, okay. And so, In ancient Rome, how did they construct their sexual mores? Well, you had to behave sexually in a way that demonstrated your superiority or inferiority to the person you're having a sexual encounter with. So Romans, we're not talking about Christians or Jews now, but just Romans in general, um, it's okay for a free Roman male to have sex with pretty much anyone other than another free Roman male uh, or another free Roman's wife, another citizen's wife. Um, So uh, it would be assumed that if you had slaves that you would probably be having sex with them. That's okay unless – you liked your male slaves to play the active role and you were the recipient because then your slave is treating you like a woman Mm -hmm. and you've been you know you've you've lost your masculinity like this so one of my questions when i come to the bible is to what extent does the bible share that some of those assumptions and i think uh, i think it's possible that it does um in romans one uh you know paul says um he's talking about you know women um being burned, burning their desire for for one another, um, and then he says in the same way, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Mm-hmm. What on earth is he talking about? Mm-hmm. I remember being like fifteen or sixteen and writing STDs? Question mark You know, it was like the height of the AIDS uh-huh. epidemic. I was like, Oh, is that what he's talking about? Yeah. No, Paul did not know about you know about yeah. AIDS uh, proleptically. Um, I think what he's talking about is simply the fact that you are receiving another man's penis mm-hmm. into you mm-hmm. which would be mm-hmm. like d you know demasculinizing Demas- yeah. but the only way that that argument works is if you assume that men are better than women and that being treated like a woman is somehow inherently shameful mm-hmm. right because you're being de- you're losing the honor that you have inherently as a man by being treated like it's a op- woman so Paul had that
0: assumption. Paul uh, believed this.
1: This is what I yeah, this is kind of where where I'm, yeah. you know, kind of edging toward. And then in 1 Corinthians, you know, there's two words that get associated with the same sex stuff. Um one of them seems to echo Leviticus. It talks about a man bedding a woman. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is it's a little more unclear. He, he uses the word malakos, which means soft. And the re, the way that that gets depicted as something that's bad, it basically it's a man who acts too much like a woman. Do you spend too much time grooming yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have... Um, I might be in trouble. Right. <laughs> uh, and even some things like, you know, they thought self-control is better than the pas- being inflamed to your passions. So if you had too much sex, you were thought of as a malocaust. You're acting womanly. You can't control your body, right? Mm-hmm. So you could have too much. So what, how does malocaust serve as a negative way to label somebody? Mm-hmm. Only if... Acting like a woman is somehow disgraceful or shameful, and Paul shared in that. So, so I do think that that like that internal critique I want to make is present. But you know, now I'm you know, kind of edging my way. Like that's one angle I take to get a little leverage on, like what's going on here and why are they saying the things they are? Right? Why does Why does Leviticus not just say it's unlawful for a man to have sex with? Another man it says it 's unlawful for a man to lie with a man as one lies with a woman, mm. okay and that 's also from leviticus it 's part of the priestly thing you 're going to hold on to that for me for one second mm-hmm. so um, then there's this other this other angle, and that is if you 've ever read the New Testament much at all, you know there 's these big fights about How do the Gentiles get to be part of this thing? So Jewish people are two kinds of people in the world kind of people. There's Jewish people and there's not Jewish people. Not Jewish people are Gentiles. Jewish people are circumcised, Sabbath-keeping, law-keeping descendants of Abraham who are the people of God. What happens is non-Jewish people start saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. God pours out the Spirit on them. They speak in tongues, all this stuff to say, yes, they're God's people. Now, do they have to become circumcised, law-keeping, Sabbath-obedient Jews? in order to be part of the people of God? Or is that other thing that God did by giving them the spirit, is that enough to mark them as the people of God? In other words, God has said yes to them. Is that a tentative yes until they do this other thing? Or is that just the yes, which redefines the identity of the people of God and what, what makes them faithful, right? And so there's a This was not an easy one, but eventually um, the stories are all saying, "Yeah, if you have the spirit, um, if God has like, if you believed in Christ and received the spirit, that's enough because Christ defines the people of God, not the law." Mm. So now this comes like, so now here you are, you're hanging out with LGBT people in your church who are faithfully following Jesus. You know, bracket the sexuality question faithfully following Jesus just as well as everybody else, any evidence you have that you're looking for of somebody who's filled with the spirit of God, God has marked them, right? Is that enough? Mm -hmm. Right. Or do they have to become, do they have to follow, do they have to become heterosexual? In other words, you know, Mm -hmm. come within the heteronormative world, Mm -hmm. which means you're either celibate or having sex with somebody who is a binary person of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. And, Using that model, again, not how do we just say what Scripture says, but how do we do what they did? Mm. Like That's where I just start – this is why relationships change everybody's mind about this when the Bible doesn't because you're with this person and you're like, you're a better Christian than me. Um, even though you've got a same-sex partner, maybe not having a same-sex partner isn't the thing that marks out the faithful people of God after mm-hmm. all. Maybe this broader way of life in Jesus and way of love in Jesus is what does it. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think Luke Johnson is exactly right about that, that there's a way to say, okay, these verses are the only thing that matter. And what I start seeing when in the communities where people say that is it destroys people. Mm -hmm. Like not only are these other people over here in the community, you know, in other ways, following Jesus and faithfully showing me what it looks like to be a Christian. I also see that the impact of this traditional view is not leading people into life and health and wholeness. It's Mm -hmm. death and destruction. And that's not the work of the Spirit. That's not the work of God either. So I think those two things together, and I have to just say— I could be wrong about this and I would rather be wrong about this and have more people together with me following Jesus and showing me how to follow Jesus well than to be wrong about this in such a way that makes these other folks either leave this Christian community entirely Mm -hmm. or commit suicide Mm -hmm. or depression or, you know, all these other destructive things that happen.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate you using that phrase, I could be wrong. I think I I hope and wish more pastors, more leaders, more people who are representing Christ would be willing to say, I could be wrong on this. Uh, I don't hear sometimes a lot of people willing to humbly say that in regards to the other side of uh, looking at scripture, like, well, you know, I could be wrong, but the Bible says that I I, I hear more people saying, well, this is what the Bible says, not willing to engage. And I guess I just want to say humbly to listeners, we need to, you know, I grew up, you know, grew up, quote unquote, for the past 20 years uh, looking at scripture in, in the same way. And it took my friends, it took people, it took uh, others who were uh, humbly and passionate, uh, passionately preaching about this way of interpreting scripture to help me see or else I would have missed it. And I, d- I definitely need to you know, affirm what Daniel is talking about here in the words of my friend Matt, who said, um, there's no abundant life in the closet. If we want people to experience abundant life, um, we don't want them to a stay in the closet or be repress who they are at their core, their identity. And that took me a long time to understand too. Cause I don't always say, well, our identity should be in Jesus, but I'm coming from a different, you know, heterosexual perspective. And for someone who says I have friends who are gay, who are not followers of Christ and friends who are gay, who are, but all of them will say, I don't, this is not a choice. I'm not choosing this. This is who I am. Like one friend, uh, even posted on Facebook uh, to this conversation, he said, I don't understand why so many... He's a, not a follower. He said, he, said, he said he's spiritual but not a religious person. He said, I don't know why so many people hate me and have things against me, especially people who are Christians, because if you are a person uh, of God and of design, you would look at me and say, like, this is how I'm designed. He was even using those very mm. words about design, which I thought was just really awesome. So I guess in you know wrapping up this part of the conversation, Daniel... What do we do with that phrase, God's design? Because most people throw that out like, well, it's God's design. It's man and woman. It's Adam and Eve. And uh, if you look at the natural expressions of our biology, penises and vaginas, it just seems wrong to have there be any other um, expressions of that kind of in sexuality and intimacy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, I think the first thing I would say is
1: uh, I would just encourage you to realize that that is not a biblical argument um that uh, one of the super popular um books defending the traditional position it doesn't explicitly say that but kind of he intimates it enough that it's it becomes very easy to think oh well this is yeah this is what's going on this is the reasoning behind you know what the what the bible says and the bible doesn't actually give us its reasoning mm-hmm. um and you, you know, we need to think about um we need to think about how that that goes. the other thing is uh when i was i was when i was diving into homosexuality in the roman world uh i'm sorry I no know, i know i'm sorry it <laughs> sounds
0: I, very yeah it's it's
1: awesome uh you know there's there's nothing like studying sex uh f- among people who have been dead 2000 years it's a lot safer there's no labs um nothing weird uh sorry uh, to, i was reading this book this su- one summer uh called roman homosexuality so i want to apologize i i use the phrase homosexuality i know folks who are same sex don't don't generally like that word uh, um, but the book was called Roman Homosexuality. And as he was introducing the, the study, he said, you know, here's a, a lesson. He's a classicist. And he's like, here's a lesson I learned from this eminent classicist you know, in reading ancient texts. He said, for nature, read culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so like ancient people thought that things that they did that, that nobody else did were nature's ways and that were civilized. And what everybody else did that was different was barbaric. Mm. Um, And we still think that even though we know that there are multiple cultures and things are are just different. So uh, like when you think that something is according to nature or design, um, first of all, just be aware that those are actually very culturally loaded uh, phrases uh, and we, we bring a lot of assumptions with them. The the other thing I, next thing I would say is, the science doesn't actually bear out uh, the mm-hmm. idea that people are binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there are other cultures that have multiple words for genders, mm-hmm. like seven mm-hmm. or eight, where you know people fall on are assumed to fall on a spectrum of gender identity. Um, and the uh, there are. A lot of cultures that just assume like both Greek and Roman cultures assumed that a man would be equally attracted to men and women, and that's why they're like, that's never an issue. It's just making sure that you get together with the right ones and avoid the wrong ones. So the idea that that we have that attraction is you know uh, a binary also that's something that's probably been impacted by the fact that we have more men than women doing theology in hmm. uh, especially in traditional conservative church contexts hmm. and i think women are a lot more likely to report a spectrum of attraction uh than hmm. than men are uh, i think that's that's stereotype but it's also i think there's a little bit of research uh, in that as well um and yeah and then physically uh if you don't know what intersex is you know Find out um, the ancients actually knew about this. People whose um, sexual organs weren't completely formed, and that they 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 had to figure out ways of how are these people going to fit? How are they going to express? The ancient Jews um, knew this as well. Um, Megan DeFranza has a great book on intersex, um, like intersex and Christian thought, or something like that. Uh, Uh, Sex, intersex and something. Um, But go look, go read that book and just have your mind blown about this world that you you probably don't know. So Mm -hmm. there are there is a generalization of male and female, um, but that's that isn't necessarily like the thing that that nature shows us. Um, Yeah, I, I don't. I don't necessarily want to get into, you know, rumors I've heard about, you know, anal sex being enjoyable for for men or or things like that. Like, you know, hey, it'll fit there, uh, whatever. Um, I'm
0: definitely have to put the warning of the adult language, the adult content on this podcast. Well, I mean, okay, (laughs) But, but here's
1: the other thing. Like, people will make that argument, but I hear very few folks who are willing to stand up and say, and anything, any sexual contact other than penis vagina between a male missionary
0: position only
1: right and it it is acceptable right i don't i don't see the the same sex you know the or the you know the the radical advocates of male female only Mm. talking about oral sex Mm. being bad Mm -hmm. i don't hear them talking about like anal sex like being something that's you know an abomination to Mm -hmm. god uh or whatever and though yeah Mm -hmm. i think i think for the person who wrote leviticus it probably would be but Mm -hmm. here's the deal Leviticus. Oh, we're going to come back to the coming back to the Bible because that's where I feel that <laughs> I feel safer there. Let's stop talking about anal sex. Um, the Leviticus, the, the Levitical laws. Those are the priestly laws. Those are the same. Those are the categories of laws that like were. Uh, about circumcision but mostly like the food laws and all the dietary restrictions like all the stuff that you think of as stereotypical oh we don't have to do that anymore like that's that's levitical law the sac, the temple sacrifices the you can't mix um you know wool and cotton like Mm. all of that stuff polyester blends are a no-no all of that is this this one thread uh, most of that is in this um, the priestly thread, which is the same place where you find the prohibitions on same sex contact um, who would also they would also probably be disgusted about um, anal sex just because of the way they imagine purity, mm-hmm. uh, but the purity laws are the things that nobody cares about in Christianity anymore, so saying that you know going back and picking cherry picking yeah. a couple of priestly purity laws and saying, Oh yeah. these are always true, I think that that 's problematic on this kind of a in consistency and biblical interpretation kind of perspective.
0: Mm. That's thought I love I love Acts chapter ten. I was just I was I showed up to I'll call it a church gathering where I was preaching and thought I had a different text and they said Oh no you have Acts chapter ten. I said Oh okay. give me ten minutes I need to read Acts chapter ten and then I got to preach through Acts chapter ten in the wow. same way which is about Peter engaging with God through a trance and basically he hears the voice of God three times. Ironically right where God says like Hey the people, of the the Gentile people can experience the Holy Spirit and stop trying to not eat this kind of food anymore. And I just, I was crazy, like reading this text and preaching it to this church, being where I was working through this theology mm-hmm. of, you know, same-sex attraction and couples and all this stuff. It was really wild and eye-opening to me. I don't know if that has any um, merit today as we have this conversation. I think it does. Yep. But I, I love that in scripture we have, you know, the people of God being rebuked by God himself saying, open your eyes. Oh, okay. And here's, and from, from
1: my money, here's the best part about that. I I absolutely love that passage. The best part about that is that biblically speaking, Peter is right. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Biblically speaking, Peter is right. And what God says to him is not, no, you're reading the Bible wrong. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that what God says is what I have made pure Mm -hmm. Don't you defile. Mm -hmm. So what God is saying is, I did something here, and you need to respond to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the Luke Johnson thing, right? It's You you can't keep holding—you can either keep holding on to Scripture, or you can respond to the reality of what God has done here and start reading that Scripture differently or finding those alternative voices that open up a different path from simply reading those passages and continuing to apply them today. And that's, for my money, that's the Mm best— argument for LGBT inclusion. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are other folks who, you know, try to who've done given readings to just say none of those passages apply, and you know, just kind of that, but that doesn't quite work for me. But this the idea that God has said, look, this is my beloved son. You cannot tell him he's an orphan mm-hmm. uh, or out in the cold. He needs to be in here. Celib- you, uh, the party's going on in here for him, mm-hmm. and you know you're you're being Grumpy Pants' older brother uh, mm-hmm. out here. So come on and, and join this because this is the uh, thing that God has done.
0: That's good, man. That's a great place for us to. Uh, wrap it up. and um, before, Oh my gosh, you need to come back on the podcast. Cause now that I'm not your student, that's a uh, pressure to get a grade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk more and be taught by you. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So the final thing, where are you right now? And what are you doing? You are doing a whole new thing. You're not in a seminary, um, professor role anymore. You're doing this thing that I want you to talk about.
1: Yeah. So I'm working for the new begin house of studies. Um, named after Leslie Newbegin, ambitional
0: theologian. Speaking and, of gender bending, I love that his name was Leslie. Yeah, I
1: think it's a British thing. Is it British? Yeah, okay. yeah right. Anyway, um, you don't, yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, Wait, was so, he British or Scottish? I, thought it, I think he was English. Was he English? I think yeah, so, okay. yeah. Uh, and he had been a missionary in India. But okay. uh, I'm working with a one specific program. It's a, a nine-month fellowship for lay people, so not folks generally who want to be pastors, although we do have some pastors who do it. Uh, and we, for nine months, we do biblical and theological sp- formation. We do um, spiritual practices, cultivation, and doing all that in a context of friendship, mm-hmm. which is actually like a really big deal, like giving mm-hmm. folks, you know, you put folks together in the same room for nine months where they've actually prepared, they've come, they share their stories, they engage in spiritual practices together. Um, you know, it, it does actually form some really great, really great bonds. And so, you know, what are we doing with all of that? You know, I think what, what a lot of us find is that you know, once we get into real working world, Like we need to reassess. Like, how do we be faithful Christians in this place? And you know, Leslie Newbegin's whole thing was we have to carry the gospel with us into the world because we're not going to be able to bring the world into the church to learn about Jesus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And part of how I've been, I've been trying to marry that with a really. Broad, uh, broad, wide understanding of the kingdom of God and new creation. So, you know, for my money, the gospel is wherever there is life, health, peace, flourishing, being brought to bear in any situation where there was anything less than that, like, you know, that there are the kind of inklings of what the kingdom of God is about. And so, you know, when I think about being a Christian at work, I want folks asking those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing in the biblical and theological formation piece is to help Folks get equipped to read the Bible well, yes, um, but also to start asking these questions like, what is the gospel really? Like, what difference does it make if, you know, you have a creedal understanding of what the gospel is or a justification by faith version or you read James Cone and he's like, I don't care. Like Okay, sure. Jesus is at God's right hand forever. But you know what I need to know as a black person is Jesus with me in the slave shed on the other Mm -hmm. end of the whip and at the other end of the pistol? Because Mm -hmm. like where where Jesus is, like how you answer that question matters differently in different places. And uh, you know, so then to ask, all right, so you're working at you're working at Google. Um, Great, Uh, Mister Search Engine. Where's Jesus? Mm where are you You know, interacting with things you work for Airbnb great mm-hmm. what does it mean to be Airbnb who's making a ton of money in a city that's having a housing crisis like mm-hmm. can you
0: can you ever ask that there's no room in the Airbnbs right now in San Francisco <laughs> just like there's no room in the- <laughs>
1: or can, can you ask that question yeah um, like because housing is mm-hmm. part of you know flourishing human life so yeah. you know I want folks to be able to do. So so we're reading all kinds of different theology and just asking like What can we learn? And a lot of that is this love your neighbor by listening to your neighbor thing. We're going to, you know, we're going to listen to some uh, Native American Christian, to some Mm. uh, first generation um, Korean American, some other just to start saying like, hey, you know, I was talking about this isn't just like a fixed thing where you've got the right answer. Um, there's yeah. other Jesus stories being preached, and I think mm. we've got a lot to learn from them. Not just to know how it is, the Jesus story for you, but so that I can start reimagining what a life-giving Jesus story might be for me where I am now.
0: That's awesome. So is this something people apply to? And you have to be in the Bay Area, I assume, unless you want to come nine months live here. That's but
1: right. That's right, yeah. How do they find you? Uh, yeah, so go to newbeginhouse.org. It is a uh, nine-month program that we we kick off in September. Um, there are also other new begin programs, some of them for pastors where the assumption is that you're remote, but that you would come here for a couple mm-hmm. of gatherings and retreats. And we have some really great, um, leadership for that. And in addition to our new begin staff, uh, Julie Rogers is going to be helping us. She went through it. She's going to be helping us with it next year. So, um, some, yeah, some folks out there that, that you might've heard of. So there are some other opportunities and I'd encourage folks to check out NewBeginHouse.org. Can you spell that? N-E-W-B-I-G-I-N house dot org. Apparently um my my boss has somebody said to him once, Oh yeah, you're the realtor. They're like, what? Your email, new big house. <laughs> uh,
0: he's like, if only here in San Francisco. If only I was a realtor. And then people start singing the audio adrenaline song that takes me back to the '90s. It's a big, big house. Do you With know that? Lots song? and
1: lots of room. Yeah, lots and
0: lots of room. Big, big table. Uh, all right. Well, we are at a big table in San Francisco. Daniel Kirk, you've been awesome. I'm gonna have to come back. L- thank you. I really, really appreciate your time. And you are also on on Twitter, and you are always doing all your your theo la. Lot- you're a theologian, you're a Twitter theologian.
1: Yeah, I think that's true.
0: Uh, Yeah, you can find me
1: on Twitter at J-R-D Kirk, J-R-D-K-I-R-K. All
0: right, that's it. Life is sacred and life is strange and enjoy and embrace every minute of it. All right, man, that was good. That was
1: fun. You can post questions or suggest topics for the podcast on our Holy Cannoli Facebook page or use the hashtag Holy Cannoli Podcast on Twitter, and we might read your question or suggestion on air. Thanks
0: for listening to Holy Cannoli. If you liked my dad's podcast, please subscribe, give it a review, and share it with someone you think would be encouraged by it.